0: You are listening to Gaining Christ Audio, a ministry designed to teach the absolute truth of God from the Bible in order to encourage you in your knowledge of God as well as your confidence, gratitude, and faithfulness in Him or so that you will hear the true gospel, come to genuine faith in Christ Jesus and receive eternal life if you have not already. Welcome and thank you for joining us. In this podcast, as we continue in our discussion on the grace of God, we will now carefully interact with the top objections against the doctrine of God's grace in order to further clarify the beauty of God's eternal truth for your spiritual well being. As we begin, I would like to reiterate that the subject of God's grace is complicated. It is complex, intense, yes, beautiful and overwhelming and extremely encouraging. It is also very difficult to understand. I can testify to that. These are deep waters. We come into this subject carefully with respect and hopefully humility, to honor God and encourage you in your knowledge of God and the truth of God. This is God's truth. The eternal, sovereign, comprehensive, overwhelming grace of God is God's truth from the Bible. It is not my truth. It is not a church's truth, nor is it a denomination's truth or a seminary's truth or a philosophy's truth, or a sect of Christianity's truth. This is God's truth. And God wants us to understand his truth. Peter concludes his second letter this way, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have defined the grace of God this way the exceedingly generous and merciful loving kindness of God given by God to an undeserving recipient, further asserting that the grace of God necessarily and effectually permeates or saturates every layer, point, aspect, or step in a person's salvation. It is eternal, God and His Grace was at work for people in eternity past, before time even began. And God exerted and gave his grace as he sees fit throughout time to people, causing people to come to faith, being held in his grace for security and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. There are, however, many who do not understand or fully understand God's grace or even more object to the doctrine of God's grace. There are many, maybe you are one of them. We appreciate you listening. We hope you will be encouraged in what the Bible says, who say that it's absolutely not God's grace that causes salvation. And God's grace is not eternal. God does not sovereignly choose or select those he will save. Nor does God cause people to come to faith. Man, on the other hand, has the will, the intellect, and the power on our own to believe the gospel and come to Christ if we so choose, people might say. God in love waits for us to choose him and come to Christ. Today, we will look at the most popular or common objections to the doctrine of grace. The seven most common objections to grace that assert that God's grace does not operate as we have suggested from the Bible. Using Scripture carefully as we evaluate each of these objections, beginning with the first objection, Called the free will objection, where a person will say it is not God's grace that causes a person to come to faith in Christ because God gave man free will, and we come to Christ if we decide or choose to come. Now, certainly the Bible says that you must come to faith in Christ to receive eternal life. Jesus preached, Come to me, come. All of you who are burdened and heavy laden come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls Matthew 11:28 Jesus says in John chapter 6 verse 40 that his father's will is that everyone who believes in him will have everlasting life. He says, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry spiritually. Certainly we must come to him, no doubt. But Jesus also continues as he says, no one can come to me in verse 44, unless the father draws him or drags him. How does a person come to faith? Is it our free will, our decision that we conjure up or muster up by our own intellect inside? Is it our choice and decision that causes us to turn, embrace, and trust and follow Christ? Or is it God's grace? Jesus says it is God's grace. John 6, 63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, the will of man included, is no help at all. Paul echoes this clear biblical thought in Romans chapter 9, where he writes in verse 15 that God says this, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then It, salvation, depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is not our will that causes us to come to faith and receive eternal life from God, as Jesus clearly has stated. It is God's compassionate mercy upon a person that causes their will to now want Christ Jesus and actually want to follow Christ, and when you think about the human will, especially before it's saved, it is not actually even free, technically. We do not have a free will. Why? Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they destroyed the pure free will of mankind, and now our will is in bondage to our sin and the passions and the desires of the mind and the darkness of the world and even the Satan and the principles and the agenda of the world control us. Whoever sins is a slave of sin. John chapter 8, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. We are controlled by our sin. We do not have the willpower power, to make the decision to understand, furthermore, believe, trust, and follow Christ. It is God's gracious will upon over our will to cause a person to believe. Absolutely, it is God's grace that makes people believe. Yeah, when you believe the gospel, you want to. You're making a choice, but who caused you to want that choice? God changes our wills by his grace. Objection number two says that God in grace gave Christ. That is clear. But no further grace is needed because all a person needs to do is just say a prayer and invite Jesus into their heart. Now, at first pass, this is not a direct objection to the doctrine of grace. But as you dig deeper, it's actually a monumental denial of the power and purpose of God's grace. Just say a prayer and ask Jesus to enter your life as being true faith and salvation does not consider God's requirement that a person must repent of their sin, turn away from sin, and embrace Christ in genuine faith and allegiance to Christ for the rest of their life. There are many who have said a prayer asking Jesus to come into their life and actually have no idea why they need Jesus and who Jesus actually is. But they're told to do that. If you've said this prayer, welcome to the family of God, you're saved. This is not true. This idea typically comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, where Paul does actually write the following. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And people say, look, if you just think and say this, you will be saved. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying just say a prayer. He's saying that if you truly, you truly confess that Christ is Lord and you know him as Lord and believe in your heart, not just through a statement or a prayer that you may not even understand, but in your heart that God raised him from the dead after he was crucified and you trust him in faith you will have eternal life, absolutely. But the context is on the deep faith in Christ and what it means. There is nowhere in the Bible ever that God promises or a person says that if you say a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart, you will be saved. In fact, to the contrary, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says in John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever has faith in me will do the works that I do. Jesus tells his disciples, follow me. Paul writes to Timothy in Second Timothy uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, that God's called us to a holy calling. Jesus is not seeking people to acknowledge who he is and invite him in in a prayer. Jesus Jesus is calling people to follow him as disciples. He's looking and training disciples. Christian faith is about discipleship in Christ. To tell someone or to think that if you've said a prayer and you've invited Jesus in your heart, means that you have eternal life, is misleading and dangerous. When a person understands the grace of God, we understand that it's absolutely God's power that rebirths us into a spiritual life of, of turning from sin and faith in Christ and walking in God's ways in allegiance to Christ. Praise the Lord. Objection number three is that It is not God's grace that causes people to be saved because God is a gentleman and he would never impose his will on anyone. Now, just think about that statement and how contrary it is to the truth of God. No offense to anyone. You may have heard that. You may have thought that. I've had people try to tell me that. Ask Lazarus about God not willing to impose his will on people. He was dead for four days, and Jesus commanded that Lazarus come out of the tomb and imposed his will on Lazarus. And Lazarus couldn't reject, nor did Lazarus ask Jesus to do it. Jesus just did it, and he came out of the tomb. Furthermore, look at the Apostle Paul, arguably the most influential devoted Christian of all time, perhaps. Before that, he hated Jesus and was killing Christians and was stuck in his legalistic Judaism of spiritual death and, and, a, and a sinful heart not pleasing God. And he was on his way to persecute Christians, and God, in his loving grace, imposed his will on Paul and saved him. Absolutely. <laughs> God is far more than a gentleman. He's a gracious, loving, proactive God. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see, understand, and enter the kingdom of heaven. It is God's love that comes on us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, slaves to the passions of the flesh, and our nature was dead and contrary to God. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. God's loving grace is proactive, and absolutely God will assert Impose and grant his will on any sinner when he wants to open their eyes and heart and bring them to everlasting life and make him or her an eternal son of God forever. Praise the Lord. Objection number four states the following God does not sovereignly choose individual people to be saved. On the other hand, God foreknows all who will actually believe the gospel when they hear it hear it, because God can see all things and he knows everything in the future. And as a result of what he sees people doing when they hear the gospel for those that actually in their free will believe, he then subsequently chooses them. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that God chose us believers in Christ in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 that God has called us to a holy calling he has saved us not because of our works but because of his own purpose in his grace, a grace which God gave to us in Christ before time began. According to the Bible, as shocking as I understand this is, God, before time began, before the world began, before the ages began, before anything existed but God, God had already given his grace to specific recipients that would receive it in the future. For those who object to the truth of God's grace, they will take a word in the Bible and mistranslate it. And it often comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Paul writes the following, talking about God's grace and predestination. Paul writes this, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom God called, he also justified. Those whom God justified, he also glorified. So they think that God foreknew who will believe in Christ before they existed. And then subsequently, as a result of what he knows people will do, he then predestined them to be in Christ, or he chose them in Christ but it's not that he chose them to be in Christ and then caused them to come to faith in Christ. Well the problem is people do not understand the meaning of the word foreknow because to foreknow prognosko does not mean foresight. There is a word for foresight in the Bible proorao in the Greek. Acts chapter 2 verse 31 where David Peter preaches, foresaw the coming and resurrection of the Christ. But foreknowledge, beforehand knowing of a person, is not just being aware of what they will do because you prophetically can see it in the future. It means that God literally had intimate involvement with, knew and wanted, and his love was graciously already upon a person from God prior to that person ever existing. For example, as God says to the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 1, verse 5 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, and furthermore, I'd already set you apart for myself because I knew you and appointed you to be a prophet to the people. Foreknowledge is not foresight. Those whom God predestines and chooses to be in Christ are the ones, according to the Bible, that God had intimate, favoring, gracious love and desire for in eternity past. I know that this is difficult and shocking for people to hear, but this is God's truth from the Bible. It is not our will that that chooses Christ and then, or, and God sees that and then subsequently chooses us. God has foreknown and loved and then subsequently because of God's love, he chooses people in Christ to be saved. Foreknowledge is far more deeper than foresight. And absolutely God does sovereignly. Determine who he will save based on who God has already given his love to in eternity past. Shocking, difficult, but yet beautiful and true. Praise the Lord. Objection number five. God desires everyone to be saved. Therefore, God would never give his grace to one person and not give it to everyone because God wants everyone saved. Now, this idea, which is understandable, does come from some inaccurate translations of some verses in the New Testament. Predominantly, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes the following. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise about his return. One day, as some count or estimate slowness, but God is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if we read that verse out of context and take it universally, it would seemingly suggest that God does not want anyone to perish. And he wants everyone to come to repentance. So therefore, we can conclude that God desires everyone to be saved. So therefore, we must conclude that it's not God's grace that causes people to be saved. Because since God wants everyone to be saved, he would then give his grace to everyone who he wants saved, which, according to this verse, is everyone. But that's not what Paul meant, and that's not what the verse actually says, especially when we read it in context of Peter's uh, chapter that he wrote, and we understand the audience who received the letter. The audience who received the letter has been identified already in chapter 1 as being those who are elected by God according to God's foreknowledge. And in the beginning of chapter 3, he calls his recipients, the beloved of God, the beloved. So these are people who are loved by God. And the context of the chapter is in reference to God's patience to not bring about his judgment in the return of Christ because God still has work to do with the gospel. So do not think that since it's been such a long time, according to human estimates, Since God made the promise of his return and the return has not yet come, that God will not actually come because God's patience is due to the fact that he still wants people who he's elected and foreknown to reach repentance. And that's why God is patient. Because many of the people who read the letter after it was written will realize that they weren't saved weeks ago or months ago or years ago. But because of God's patience before sending Christ, they've come to faith in Christ by God's grace and they've repented and they are now saved. In other words, let's say that I were to send out an email because I wanted to have a party and I wanted to invite 20 of my good friends. And, and in the email, it says, I'm having a dinner party. I'm going to host it in January of next year. I'm giving you plenty of time to mark it in your calendars because I do not want you to have any conflicts because I want everyone to make it. I could say that, but in saying that, did I just imply that I want everyone in the entire world to come to my party? No, I'm speaking to the 20 people I sent the invitation to, and Peter's letter is written specifically to those who are the elect of God and the foreknowledge of God, the beloved one, and God's patience is on behalf of those and anyone else in that category. The other verse in the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in this chapter that verse 4 that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, if we read that verse alone out of context, not understanding the Greek, we could assume that God wants everyone to be saved and come to knowledge of truth. Therefore, it's not God's grace that caused people to be saved. He lets people come to him if they want because not everyone comes to God. But if he wants us to come to God and it's his grace, he would give grace to everyone. So therefore, it cannot be his grace, they will conclude. Paul is not writing to Timothy saying that God wants every person to be saved. If you read the chapter in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1, the context is he tells Timothy to make to pray for all types of people, for kings, for people in high positions, and live a godly life because God wants all all people to be saved, not just Jews, not just certain people in certain places. Paul was talking about how God had sent him to be a preacher to the Gentiles. All people does not mean in the Greek every person. This phrase has been used in other places. That God in His grace gives salvation to all people, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This doesn't mean every person. We know that God's promise of salvation was already given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God said, Through you, Abraham, because your bloodline will yield the Messiah. All the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That doesn't mean every family, every family member, or every nation, every person, every nation. It just means people of all types, all peoples around the world. As evidenced by the vision that John saw in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, when he looks into heaven and he sees a multitude of people from every nation so large it's uncountable that God is saved. God wants all types of people to be saved, and they will be. But then someone will add, but God loves everyone. And we're all his children. And so because God loves everyone, God would never give grace to one person and not another. Because God gives his grace to all. Now, this is a very difficult situation topic and question, does God love everyone? As many people assume, this comes from our assumption, our ideas and expectations of God, and some mistranslations of some other verses. It's a very tough question. But does God love everyone? in an everlasting, eternal, gracious giving, wanting them to have salvation manner. Certainly, God gives his grace to all humans, common grace. We have food and air, gravity to hold us. We have skills and natural gifts and intellect to do things. God gives us enjoyments in life. Even when people sin and rebel against God, God still allows people to live. He's kind. But when we say love, we're talking about an everlasting, eternal, sovereign, intimate, favoring love. Does God love everyone in this manner? Well, according to the Bible, he does not. According to God's own word, he does not. In Romans chapter 9, and I know this is very, very difficult. This is the most difficult and challenging aspect of of the truth of God's grace being sovereignly given to whoever God wants to give it, this is the most difficult point. In Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 11, Paul writes regarding the twin boys that Isaac, the son of Abraham, Isaac and his wife Rebekah were soon to have. And as Paul is describing and talking about God's sovereign election and saying that it's not all humanity or even the Jews biologically who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise through election who are God's children. And in verse 11, he says regarding the twins Jacob and Esau, who were in Rebekah's womb at the time, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of God who calls, Rebekah was told, the older twin will serve the younger. As it is written, verse 13, Romans 9, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated or abandoned or rejected or passed over. This is God's own word. This is very, very difficult to hear and to imagine and realize that God's eternal, everlasting love is not for every single person in the world. As Paul continues in verse 15, As God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is a loving God. God is a gracious God, no doubt, but God is not obligated to give his grace and his loving kindness to everyone to be in that category. It is God's sovereign will and his love and his reasons and his salvation to give as God wants to give, his compassion, grace, and loving mercy. And when a person understands this, he or she will drop to their knees and say, praise the Lord for his loving grace that foreknew and loved me and chose me and kindly granted me the understanding and the power to repent and believe and trust and know Christ. It is God's loving kindness and grace to be given as God wants it to be given. And then someone will follow with objection number six, and they will say, I cannot imagine a God like that. Therefore, it cannot be true. And there's many people that think this way. If they cannot imagine, they cannot understand, they they cannot accept that God works in this way and behaves and acts and loves in his sovereign way as he wishes. And grace is what the Bible says. They will not accept it or somehow it can't be true because they cannot imagine it. I've read that in commentaries on Romans 9, actually. I cannot imagine a God like this. So therefore, here's how you should interpret this passage differently than what it says. Here's God's response to this objection. Psalm 50, verse 21, you thought that I was one like yourself. You actually imagined me to act and behave and to do and to think like you would. That's a foolish thought. God says to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8, He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, O man, neither are your my ways your ways. Are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We cannot box God into some God only to what we can imagine or prefer as many unfortunately do and i did actually for a long time in my life until i started letting the bible speak to me rather than my own imaginations which concludes what god wants to say let the bible let the bible show you who god is and what is truth not not your limited carnal reason which is broken and extremely limited paul continues on the unfathomable nature of god in romans 11 verse 33 and following oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of god how unsearchable his judgments how unfathomable are his ways for who has known the mind of the lord or who has been God's counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God that he should repay him? For from God and through God and to God are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So true. Please do not do not limit, in your mind at least, we can't limit God, but in your mind at least, who God is and what he would do and how he behaves based on your own imaginations or preferences. But the one who understands grace by the grace of God, trust God's Word, what God says about himself, man and salvation. These matters are certainly difficult and complicated, no doubt, and shocking when we think about them. but the Bible is true and states the truth. Lastly, objection number seven, which really shouldn't even be considered because it's a foolish objection, is is God's grace, is universal to all. It's God's love wins. In the end, everyone is saved. Love wins. Someone wrote in his book that unfortunately people write. Uh, every human will be saved no matter what they think, what they believe, what they do. In the end, God is so loving and gracious. It wins and gather, God will gather everyone, all the Jews and all the people and everyone in the world. His love is universal. Well. This is a foolish, faulty, totally misguided thought that comes from Satan himself originally, who wants people to think there's no urgency to believe in Christ and come to Christ. God's love has won. God's love will win. When God came down from heaven, lived a perfect life, namely Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross successfully and victoriously rose out of the grave in his loving grace and rose into heaven and pours out his spirit and sovereignly gives his salvation to whomever he is pleased to give it. Love wins for the sheep of Christ by God's grace, who by God's overwhelming favor and kindness are reborn and repent and come to genuine faith in Christ. Praise the Lord. And again, these are deep waters. This is a very serious subject. It deserves a, a more time and thought and biblical reading in our next podcast we will look further into foreknowledge election and predestination until then we hope that you have a great week we hope this message is helpful and encouraging to you thank you very much for listening and spread the word of god